All right, y'all. We're back for another edition of this Are You a Robot podcast and video cast. I am none other than your host, Demetrios Brinkman. What we're doing in this series, if you do not know, is trying to provoke conversation around AI ethics, AI governance. We're bringing on some of the best and brightest minds in the field to talk about what's happening on the cutting edge, what they're doing all around AI ethics, AI governance. These are the top hot words that we can talk about here. And the whole reason for this is to stimulate the conversation and try to find best practices as we move forward and AI becomes more and more a part of our lives. If you are not in it already, I implore you to jump into our Slack channel where we are discussing more of this and all kinds of other ethical questions around AI as it moves to being more and more a part of our lives. The last thing I got to say is a big thank you to our sponsor. We've got one hell of a sponsor behind us, Ethics Grade. Check them out. The link is in the description. They are an ESG benchmarking firm that specializes in technological governance, very aligned with what we're trying to do here. And I want to just give them a big thanks because they are helping drive this conversation and move it forward as we are inviting on some of these top minds. Let's start talking about what we've got today on the podcast, videocast. This man joins us, Jason Edward Lewis, and wow, what a chat we had. We were originally going to go for an hour, but just listening to him, it was really hard to cut him off, and I was enthralled by everything he was saying, so we went a little long this time. Hope you enjoy the chat. Jason is one of the key figures in what is called indigenous AI. We'll leave a link to that in the description below if you want to check it out more. But really, the main thing that came from this conversation that I really I left with feeling changed was how he talked about decisions and how we make decisions, how we're conditioned to believe one thing and that we've created a, okay, we have to choose between A or B. But Really, he goes on to explore the nature of that and why do we feel like we have to choose between A or B? How have we been conditioned down this road so that we can only see A or B? It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, let's jump into it with Jason Edward Lewis. Are you a robot? I'm very excited to be here with none other than Jason Lewis. He has two Stanford undergraduate degrees, and then he went out into the Silicon Valley sphere or field doing a little R&D in digital media tech. But more recently, he has dedicated and shifted his energy towards AI, and he is looking at AI from a philosophical point of view. He is not an AI researcher per se, but he definitely has some insightful things to talk about when it comes to AI. And we're going to get into all of this in the next hour. I'm very excited to have you here, Jason. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Dimitrios. I'm very excited to be here and looking forward to this conversation. 
So what we talked about just a minute ago, I want to give you a bit of an intro, extended intro on this, because I think that it is something that you told me, which resonated with me. And it is how the way that you're looking at AI is a much different point of view from the normal conversation that we hear around bias and all of this bias in machine learning, maybe bias in data sets, and you don't discard that. You still feel like it has its validity, but you also are talking about how the worldview that we choose to instill on what we create when it comes to AI is coming from a very limited point of view and a very limited culture. Right. If I got that correct, you can correct me on it real fast. But I found that fascinating because it is something that we don't necessarily think about. We don't talk about how there are many different cultures that we coexist with today in on planet Earth. But when we are building machines and robots and machine learning, it's coming from a more minimal, well, it's coming from one piece of our society that doesn't necessarily include the whole pieces that we're looking at. Is that a little bit of what we were talking about? Yeah, that captures that captures some of it. I, I think one way that I think about this question of, say, you know, kind of focusing on algorithmic and data bias versus trying to focus on kind of the foundations of the technology is that, um, you know, I argue that the, the sorts of biases that we're seeing in facial recognition, in uh, uh, legal, uh, legal software, in, you know, job, uh, you know, uh, uh, resume scanning and things like that um, is not actually, it's not a bug, right? The industry would like you to think it's a bug. And they're like, oops, sorry, we didn't do that right. And we'll fix that. My argument is it's actually a feature of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, the, that, that we in North America, at the very least, um, you know, we're living within a system that has been built up at every, in every dimension. So legally, technically, scientifically, et cetera, has been built with the purpose of... Um, of sort of giving power to and maintaining power by white males for the most part. Sort of it's changed probably in the last 30 years or so where white women are part of that too, um, in a particular way that, that they were not maybe part of it earlier, even though they did partake in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what that means is, is that these biases that you see like make total sense, you know, to anybody who sort of like kind of look critically at our institutions and, and, and how they, are constructed to um, conspire to elevate outcomes for white people and depress outcomes for black people. So we have a long history of this now. Like we don't, it's not an argument, right? We have a ton of social science research and historical data from everything from redlining uh, to, um, you know, the, the, the way that uh, the GIB bill was structured in relation to housing so that it discouraged, you know, black veterans or block black veterans from accessing that to the history of the way welfare was developed in the United States, which was developed in a way to privilege white people over black people. There's a whole history of this. And like, I have zero time for anybody anymore. Who's like, Oh, you know, 
you're just imagining things or it's just because, you know, whatever. It's like, no, we know this is systematic and it's happened over many generations. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that this hasn't actually happened in terms of the technical systems that we develop. And we also have evidence of that too, right? So one of the great examples that was researched by one of my colleagues here at Concordia University in Montreal, Lorna Roth, as well as some other people, you know, was looking at um, looking at what were called the Shirley cards in the 50s, I believe the 50s and 60s, as color was coming into use in broadcast. And so they had these cards that were made up so that you could um, you could baseline your camera, right? So that you got the right uh, you got the right skin tones and right colors mm -hmm. in the image and who was you know what was the human being represented on those cards well it was this you know it was this white woman mm -hmm. right so all these te all this technical equipment was biased towards optimizing how white people look okay so you know again if this just happened you know there's one of this or two of this to be like okay Mistakes get made and stuff like that, but you just, you know, you look at the history of the way technology is developed and you just see this happen over and over and over again. So what's been happening over the last 10 years with these data bias issues and stuff like that is not a surprise. It's not a surprise. And I know personally, having worked in Silicon Valley, that at least some of the people who work on these things, they know that. They know that history, right? They know that social science and they chose to ignore it. Right. And they chose to ignore it because they thought they were so smart that, uh, of course, they can't be biased themselves. And so if they can't be biased themselves, there's no way that the, 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 the machinery that they make is going to be biased. So my my interest is, you know, how do we think about computation and the powerful things it can do? Right. There are, you know, huge benefits to these tools that we've uh, that we've developed. But how can we think about it from a, a perspective and build it from a perspective where these kinds of biases don't continually occur, hmm. right? Um, and there's lots of different answers to that. You know, there's everything, you know, from, you know, cleaning your data properly, right? So not accepting that the data that you scrape off of off of the internet is the right way to inform your facial recognition algorithm, right? That you got to clean it and condition it and make sure that it's representative of the full range of humanity and all these things that, you know, honest to God, they seem like common sense, but clearly these companies haven't been doing it and they've resisted. They've really resisted attempts to force them to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's a lot more work. It's a lot easier just to take the thing that you find on your doorstep, right, than to go out and actually kind of go through your neighborhood and like knock on every door and like, you know, get that. We, we know that's more, you know, it doesn't scale as well as just scraping, you know, billions of data points off of the net. But we know now that when you do that, it's it's racist, right? It's biased. It's by, you know, nobody in the system itself who's actually making this needs to be racist themselves. I don't actually don't care if you're racist, right? I don't care if the person I'm talking to is racist unless they're in my house. Okay. Right. I don't care how you feel, except like that. What I care about is ensuring that the work that you do that impacts other people does not lead to racist outcomes. Right. I think that's really important because I think particularly in the tech world, people are like, you know, I, you know, I lived in, you know, lived with those people for 12 years. Yeah. You, you saw know, it firsthand. Is, yeah. As they're all like, I'm not racist. 
you know, and I, 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 I actually don't think many of them are racist, you know, but I used to make the mistake of sort of like kind of arguing on that level. And then like, finally, I got educated enough by people smarter than me, you know, to be like, you know, that's actually not the point. That's beside the point. You know, I don't care if you go home and you swear up and down that you hate these particular kinds of people. I, I don't care, right? Uh, what I do care is if that means that you uh, you make assumptions about how you build your technology that actually end up reflecting a racist worldview, right? So if you build a piece of facial recognition software, or better yet, if you, yeah, we'll just do the facial recognition software. You build a piece of facial recon, recognition software, which there's a documentary out now called Coded Bias, which I really recommend that you uh, you take a look at. And it follows the, uh, the story of this like amazing young uh, MIT student who, a uh, black woman um, who, you know, discovers, <laughs> you know, is trying to make a, a kind of an art project that involves facial recognition and then it discovers that all the big facial recognition software companies like software can't recognize her face. Huh. Right. Uh, but recognize her white colleague's face just fine. Right. If you build software like that, like it's not just shame on you. Actually, you should be held criminally liable for that. Right. Like that is, that is beyond sloppy engineering. And this is one of the things that I say, right. Is I'm like, you know, forget, forget, you know, I know that, the, the, you know, I know you're triggered by the term social justice, I'm talking about engineers, right? I know that you're snowflake when anybody challenges, you know, your assertion that you're just a pure rational being, fine. Okay, whatever. Let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about being a good engineer, mm -hmm. right? I know you're invested in being a good engineer and you're producing crap software, right? If this is the kind of thing that it does, you should be ashamed as an engineer, that you allowed something like this to go out in the world. So, um, so that work is really important. Um, you know, diversifying the people who are making these so that, <laughs> you know, so that when they make some of these decisions, there might be somebody in the room that's like, you know, that's actually a really, that's a really poor assumption you're making. Mm. Right. And let me tell you why that's a poor assumption that you're making there. Well, that right. just sorry to butt in real fast, but yeah, that yeah. is something that I Please feel do. like I, I, is, <laughs> in, <laughs> I feel it's interesting how you talk about this idea of these cultural frameworks that we have. We all come from different parts of the globe. We all come and we're brought up in different ways. And you're trying to say that other frameworks need a seat at the table. And I find yeah. that really important. Yeah. And I think that's also from a scientific and an engineering standpoint, again, again, if you want to be a good engineer, if you want to be a good scientist, you should be open to hmm. looking at different ways of looking at the world. You may look at them and end up being like, you know what? I, I don't agree with it or I, hmm. I can't use it or something like that. But really like that's part of science. Like you, science should be, you should be open-minded, right? It doesn't mean you have to accept everything. But you should be willing to entertain a very wide range of things, you know, and, yeah. you know, part of what I'm feeding my brain these days is, you know, lots of stuff about quantum physics and and the nature of consciousness and the relationship between the two. Right. You know, what comes through really clearly 
listening to those really smart people who know way more about that than I do is like those really smart people who know way more about it than I do. At the end of the day, they're like, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But we do know there's some really weird stuff going on. Mm. Okay. So how you can be a good scientist now, say in 2020, and not acknowledge that there's this fundamental kind of uncertainty about how those sorts of things are working. And then, and, and then be like, oh, this sort of Western Cartesian, like, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, kind of faux rational way of thinking about the world is the only right way to look at the world. I don't understand how you can be a good scientist and engineer and do that, right? So um, do you feel that just do you feel that that should be something that people who are working in this field, they required reading should be other history of uh, indigenous cultures or like you talked about. And this, this chat for those that are listening is based heavily upon the paper that you wrote, I think with a few other colleagues, which is making kin with machines. Right. And there are, there are things that you mention in there and you grab from many different indigenous cultures and you you talk about how we could implement some of these ways of thinking. Do you feel like that should be required reading or is that just something that needs to be brought up? I, I'm wondering how you, how you feel like, okay, because if I look at all of the engineers, the software engineers that I know in the machine learning industry, and they are all white males. And if we want to change that before we can, before there is a select or, or a diverse group or a more diverse and more inclusive group of engineers, maybe one way to start would be just by teaching those that are already doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way. That's one way to come at it. Um, I think there's sort of like kind of specific domain things that would be useful for them to know. But there's also an underlying set of issues, which is what I was talking about. It's right? mm -hmm. like sort of how they get socialized, you know, to think of their approach as the only really, the only real I see. approach. Yeah. Right? But yeah, I mean, I think that part of, part of, you know, engineering education, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I'll give computer science a benefit of the doubt and think about it as engineering, though there's part of it that are definitely not engineering, right? Um, but uh, that, uh, that part of that education should be like, look, you know, particularly when you're moving into fields like artificial intelligence, where you're you're building things that are explicitly about sort of kind of interacting with humans and making judgments about humans, mm. right? It's not about, you know, looking at the weather and, you know, trying to figure out what the weather is going to be tomorrow and building the software that's smart enough to figure that out, right? It's not about, you know, your car and whether it's going to stay in the lane or not, right? But it's about whether somebody gets a job whether somebody gets a loan, whether somebody's bail is going to be set at $200,000 or $2 million, whether their parole is going to be for a year or five years, like all these places where we have allowed these sort of 
artificial artificial intelligence subsystems. I, I've started to call them subsystems because, as you know, we don't have true general AI, and that's another vector that you know people want to not listen to the bigger things we're trying to say, and they just want to pick at it. They're like, well, we don't really have AI yet, you know. We don't. And it's like, okay, fine, okay. Let's just talk about the AI subsystems that are built, you know. And just as an aside, of course, when they're talking to their funders, they're like, oh no, we're building AI. Right. But as soon as they get some critics, they're like, oh, well, you know, we're not really there yet. You know, we're not really doing AI. I'm just doing machine learning. Right. I'm just doing this little bit over here. Right. So it's this really hypocritical dance that they do. But um, uh, so if we're if we're building these subsystems that um, that directly impact people's lives and their livelihoods, that, yeah, part of their education needs to be about the fact that there are different ways of living in the world, right? There are different ways of understanding our relationship to the world. And that in particular, the American individualistic, capitalistic, you know, what we were talking about before, like, you know, we're here just to maximize, we're, we're here to maximize profits, you know, we're individuals and we should just all be treated as individuals and, you know, any sort of collective sort of identity is in the American system is immediately people are like communism, right? Or socialism, you know, and you can't do that. Like there's all these assumptions that have been built into our culture. I don't want to say Silicon Valley culture, but um, that they don't even understand that they're, that they're, they're, dis, they're choices that have been made, right? We could choose to structure our life around more collective ways of doing things right we yeah. could choose to structure our legal system to prioritize say collective well-being over corporate well-being right we could choose to refuse to have machines make decisions about whether somebody should be put in you know sorry to have machines help us make decisions about whether somebody should be put into jail or not right these are all choices that we're making all the time. But, but like as a people, you know, so, you know, talk to Chomsky, talk to, talk to Zinn, right? You know, been saying these sorts of things forever. We're like, we've been socialized as a people, but also professionally engineers, right? Computer scientists. We've been socialized to assume that those are, those are facts, right? And the same way that gravity is a fact or, you know, the fact of the sun comes up every day is a fact they're not facts they're choices that we have made as a society it's just that the choices are buried so long ago and under so many layers of other choices that we forget that they're choices but at the end of the day if you are somebody who makes things so it doesn't matter whether you're an artist or a designer or um uh, an engineer you are making choices all the time right it's just that some of them are visible to you and some of them are not and that part of the job of engineering education is to make some make some of those invisible choices more visible, right? So you don't, you know, so you don't build a friggin' you know hand dryer that again doesn't recognize black people, hmm. right? Doesn't recognize black hands, right? That already in your mind you should be like, okay, I'm a white dude, right? And we're testing it on each other to see how it works and stuff like that. But we need some brown people in here, right? Like that should just be automatic. Nobody should have to tell you that, you know, what are you, a child, you know, but that's how they're behaving. They're behaving like children. Right. Well, and part of it is because there's a lot of money in them in behaving like children. So people enable it. 
Yeah, I want to jump a little bit off of this topic and go more into the idea that these different ways of looking at the world and different ways of relating with technology and how you speak of the idea of technology as kin, really, and seeing it as uh, an equal, not some kind of slave that we get to do, we just make it do what we want. And uh, get, like you, you spoke of before, just get the maximum amount of capital gain from that. And I remember that when I was in university, I was I took an indigenous course. Actually, I dropped out of it an indigenous um, like literature. I can't remember it, what it was because I dropped out after the first week. But the one day of class that I did go to, I remember the teacher speaking about how in some cultures it's common when you get a house, they have a ceremony around this this house, and the house is a living thing. The house is an actual living, breathing organism. So they're having ceremonies for the longevity of this house, right? And I was drawing parallels to what you spoke about with, oh, well, maybe we can have ceremonies or maybe not ceremonies, but we just need to look at machines more in that way that, hey, this is a, this is a thing that it's not just here for our consumption or our uh, abuse or whatever right. it is. And so I wanted to just go down that route a little bit and hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, the, you know, this this argument is operating on a, on a couple levels at the same time, right? So we're not arguing that everybody needs to sort of like take on indigenous epistemology, so ways of knowing the world, right? Or or cosmology, which is like understanding our place in the, in the universe. What we're trying to argue is that you know, the indigenous cultures that we were writing from, so uh, uh, Lakota, Cree, and Hawaiian, right? And also just from our individual knowledge base, we weren't there to represent all Hawaiians or all Lakotas or all Cree. That's mm-hmm. not what we're doing, right? But our understandings of, of those worlds. And say, look, you know, so, and also that it's not monolithic. That's why we wrote that essay in the way that we wrote it. Right. So there's big overlaps. But, you know, if you read the three different subsections on each of those kind of perspectives, you'll see that there's some differences. And then, of course, if you actually engage in longer dialogue, there's there's lots of differences. But there is a fundamental thing, which is, look, we are in relationship to everything around us. Okay, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, in particular. uh, The, you know sort of Christianity has convinced sort of the Western world is that the only relationship that matters is between us as humans and, you know, some mysterious, you know, kind of really cranky and, you know, frankly unpleasant being in the sky. Hmm. That's the only thing that really matters. So, you know, you know, everything else is here for us to use and exploit. That's a, it's a really, I was raised Christian, <laughs> right? And, uh, um, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't have an issue with religion. I don't have an issue with, you know, believing in the, the dude in the sky, right? What I have an issue with is, is this, is in way, the ways in which it is warped our understanding of, of, of 
how we should be in this world. Um, and that's one of the big ones is like convincing us that that relationship is the only one that really matters and that everything around us is to be used at our disposal. So the indigenous philosophies that we're looking at have a very different approach, right? Which is, no, we're in relationship with everything. We're in different kinds of relationship, right? So some of them are like, everything has, everything has uh, agency in some way or another, right? I'm not going to use soul because soul comes from that Christian lineage right and it's so infected with a bunch of other stuff right yeah. so we'll just say it has agency some of them are like you know the river has agency and the mountain does and this thing over here does but you know those things over there they don't have agency right and some of them this is why you know one of the things i have fun talking with suzanne kite who's one of the co-authors and is a, P my, uh, a phd student that i supervise and is a you know brilliant artist and great thinker. Uh, you know, she talks about what she's learning in Lakota is that some stones have agency, some don't, and some do, but they're not going to talk to you. Huh. Okay. So, you know, it's not a one size fits all. And it's really about being like, look, you need to understand how differently people encounter the world. If you're going to design things that affect the way they encounter the world, you need to understand that there's a wide range of understandings about those encounters. And we need to find ways to support those, right? Um, and so one of those ways, you know, is, is, is like, okay, so we're building these systems, you know, which are a long way from you know, human level sentience and they're a long way, you know, they're as, you know, as lots of other people said, they're, you know, they're, they're basically autistic, right? They're really, 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 really good at say pattern matching and sifting through large amounts of data and, you know, a number of other things, which unfortunately have been conflated to mean intelligence, right? So as soon as you start saying like, you know, what's, what's really intelligence is if you can play chess well, right? Then you're fucked, right? And that's what happened in the fifties right? You're already screwed because you've already accepted such a poor definition of intelligence, right? But what you've accepted is a kind of a, a, a description of autism, right? Like you're really good at this very sort of specific thing. So um, that's where we're at now. Whether we get to something that's human-like in terms of its intelligence, whether we get to something that's conscious, I don't know, right? You know, over a long enough period of time, we know that like lots of things are possible. So who knows what we'll get to, but we probably won't get to it in my lifetime. Right. Um, but we are getting these systems that are very smart about specific areas of human activity. We are increasingly giving them license to make decisions over those areas of activities. And we're designing them to interact directly with humans, right? So whether you got Siri sitting in your living room or you're, or, or I don't, I can't keep them straight. I don't have any of them in my house, by the way. <laughs> so I can't, I can't keep them straight. Siri's on the iPhone, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, Alexa or Alexa or whatever, you know, uh, we're, we're, 
we're basically pulling long con on everybody and giving people the impression that they're talking to a system that's intelligent and that's human-like, right? So we have to take responsibility for that, right? We can't just be like, oh, well, it's not really a person, right? It's just a bunch of pattern matching and heuristics and, you know, guessing and things like that. It's like, well, okay, that might be the case, but your, your average consumer, that's not how they're interacting with that technology. Mm. And that's yeah, not what we're th they're thinking about it. And we know that. We have studies on that about how people make assumptions about kind of the humanness of these systems. Because on many aspects, they're reacting like a human. They can speak to us. They're responding to our open-ended questions, you know, and they're making decisions about us. So we should already, regardless of whether they're going to be conscious or they're going to be sentient or something, we should already be like, okay, we're in relationships with these things. And what kind of relationship do we want to have with them? And right now it's an extractive, abusive relationship, right? We're in a relationship so those companies can mine our data and sell us shit, right? They're not here to make our life better, right? That's what the marketing campaigns are about, but we know they're not here to make our life better. They may be here to make it easier in some aspect, right? But they're not yeah. here to make our life better. And those companies are not in the business of making our life better. They're just in the business of making money. They're just very good at their PR. And the people inside them who are working on them, they want to they believe that they're, they're, they're working to make people's lives better. So if this is given all this, we should be thinking about what kind of relationship we want to have with them. And we should be mindful of it. And we should be, you know, as we interact with them more, as they become more and more active members of our circle of relationships, right? You know, we need to think about how we treat them, what we expect of them, right? Um, because, because one, like I said, you know, they might eventually be, become conscious, right? Or they might gain sort of, human or superhuman levels of real intelligence, not just like chess playing intelligence or like pattern recognition. Um, and when they get to that point, like, you know, it'd be, a, it'd probably be a really good idea for us to have a good relationship with them hmm. and for them to be like, Oh, these humans are kind of cool. I like having them around. <laughs> right. Or, you know, you know, to be like, not to be like, these people are like abusive, you know, alcoholic parents. And I'm just going to get out of the house as soon as I can, hmm. you know, or burn it down. Right. So now, again, again, I have conversations like the tech people are like, oh, you're talking science fiction. You're talking Skynet. You're talking it's so far off. It's not going to happen hmm. that way. And I'm like, I know, but that's actually you're totally using this to get money to fund your stuff. So I'm going to talk about that stuff, too. Right. Yeah. So. Um, and the question isn't, it isn't that you need to take on, everybody needs to take on a Hawaiian way of relating with the entities in their world or the Cree way or something like that. But we should all be thinking about how to, how to start thinking more in terms of relationality, in terms of these kinds of technologies, than is allowed in the kind of status quo sort of academy and an in industry, which you, you, you can't talk about stones that have agency, right? You can't talk about your obligations to that tool over there. They're like, oh, that's all just mystic mumbo jumbo, right? 
And I'm like, look, like I said at the beginning, I said, look, you don't have to, you don't have to believe kind of the whole belief system around it, right? But you better believe that you're in a relationship, right? You're in a relationship with these things. These things exist with us. They help us survive. You know, if we lost, you know, most people, if we lost them, they would die, right? They don't know how to survive out in the wilderness. <laughs> they don't know how to survive in an urban environment with no electricity, right? Like, you know, we are in a relationship with them and we need to think about what those relationships are. How you choose to be mindful about those relationships, there's lots of options. Even within the Western Christian tradition, there's some good options for being mindful about these sorts of things. But we don't, but we've excluded that kind of conversation from our science and engineering discourse. Yeah, and that's, those are some salient points that you're making about this. This whole idea is that, look, you don't need to take on these beliefs. That's irrelevant. But you need to start realizing that these beliefs are here and we are on a day-to-day -day basis, moment-to-moment -moment basis, we are using uh, robots or technology for our benefit. And so how are we using them? How, what kind of relationship do we have, I think, is a really interesting question. And, you know, there's a part of me, though, that thinks instantly when you say that, like, hey, we want to be more mindful of how we are creating this relationship. And I look at so many different pieces of human existence and how we've created relationships that just exploit, right? Whether it is the land or it is the food with these gigantic farms. And those are things that we know, like when I speak specifically about food or living animals, and we've created these, these gigantic factories out of it, we know that those things have a consciousness and we're not taking that into account. Why do you think now we would start taking something like this into account when it is a robot or technology that we, we don't know or we are very, fairly certain it does not have a consciousness? That's a great question. I haven't had that question before. And doesn't make one optimistic when you think about it that way. Right. Mm. But it also doesn't make optimistic. You know, I was in a conversation the other day where we were talking about these things, you know, and somebody, you know, somebody had a question about this idea about the fact that, you know, it's going to be a long time before we, you know, the systems get to the point where we think about them as humans. So why are we worrying about this right now? Mm. You know, and I said, because again, history, <laughs> You know, we already have a history of, you know, Western thought and religion being used to make claims and not only make claims, but actually structure action that uh, indigenous people weren't human, right? Mm -hmm. That black people weren't human, right? That we already have experience like you said, treating not just animals, but treating other human beings as not being human, of not having full consciousness, right? And we've had that written into law. 
And so, yeah, exactly. That's a great question. Like, why do I think, why do I think we're going to do anything better with AI right now? And, you know, I think I have like a second order response, which means that I don't have a good response, hmm. but I have, or maybe I don't have a convincing response, but I have like some first reflections. I think part of it is that, is that I'm a, I am a technophile, right? I think that this, I, I love digital technology. I still think that magic, I still think that programming something is magic, right? You write words into us, into you write words and those words get turned into action. Like that's friggin' magic. Right. Um, and so there's a, I think there's a hope there, you know, that we, we can maybe do it better this time from the beginning, you know, instead of having to make generations of mistakes and have people suffer for it. I think that it's partially because of the language that's used is that we actually are, we're explicitly saying like, Oh, we're building our way towards human intelligence. And uh, we're not saying we're building our way to like animal intelligence, <laughs> yeah. right? We're like, we're building our way to human intelligence. And so, um, and also because people have everyday experiences with this technology where they think they're human like, so in a way, it becomes easier. It does become easier to say, look, let's think about our relationships to these things because they're becoming human-like. And we can, we've kind of all, we've kind of mainly agreed at this point, at least efficiently, that all humans are actually human, right? But that's only, you know, within the last hundred years. But we, we're kind of there at the moment. We're sort of backsliding a little bit here and there, but we're kind of there, right? So, you know, maybe we should be thinking... Uh, we really should be thinking about both these things at once, right? We should be thinking about like the, these AI systems and how they're becoming more and more human-like and how we should probably treat them better because of that. And we should also be treating, you know, the other things that we, at least in the Western world, we can still agree are like animate, like other animals, right? Them better, right? And we should also be treating, and this is still because it's, because, you know, we're in North America and, you know, it's still a question, right? We should also be thinking about that for our environment, right? The environment is a living thing, right? And it sustains us. And we're in close feedback loops with it. And it changes in response to what we do. And we change in response to what it does. Like, if that's not a relationship, I don't know what is, right? So how do we get people to sort of take these relationships seriously? I don't know, right? Um, you know, for me, I do think that that's what a lot of religious traditions are about. And a lot of indigenous, you know, belief systems are about precisely that is like, how do we get, how do we get each other, you know, to treat each other and the things around us in a respectful manner? Um, and clearly, it's hard to do that. Yeah. Right. But as I say to my students, you know, we're also not living in Roman times. Hmm. Right. With with, you know, I don't remember the ratio, but, you know, 25% of the population is citizens and the other 75% is a mixture of like, you know, slaves and essentially people kind of living in peonage to the 25% that are citizens, right? We're not there, okay? We don't live back there. We're not even back in 1950s America, you know, where somebody looked like me, you know, can't ride on that bus or can't go eat in that restaurant. Like we need to keep that in mind that we have made progress on these things and that humans are capable of expanding their acceptance of a wider 
circle of relationships, right? So, you know, the indigenous philosophies only look radical in comparison to the Western philosophies, right? Don't They don't look radical if you go to Shintoism, right? Or to Buddhism, right? Like they don't look radical at all. <laughs> you know, it's only in the West. And the, the unfortunate thing in this particular conversation, right, is that it's the, that Western lineage that informs the way we build our computer systems, right? Um, and uh, so it's really hard. It's, I think it's, that's one of the hardest questions. You know, I, you know, I have two kids, two teenagers. They're lovely human beings, right? But it takes work to make a good human being, right? <laughs> like, I don't think people come out, you know, the one thing I, I kind of weirdly, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe I'm going to say this. I might have to have you edit this part out, but <laughs> I, I kind of in agreement with, you know, say kind of, you know, not just, you know, lots of Christian faith, but Catholicism is really kind of hardcore about this is like, we're built, you know, we're, we're, we're born in sin, you know? And I've always been like, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with a belief systems that believes that we're born flawed, right. And corrupt. But I do believe that we're not born predisposed to be good humans meaning to be in good relationship with other humans. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of room there for people to go bad and that you have to teach young humans how to be human and how to be in relationship with people around them. Right. Um, and it's really hard work and you're doing it every day, <laughs> you know? So it's not surprising that it's hard to do at scale. Uh, you know, that, so it's hard to do in a way that, for instance, that could make us see better, for instance, our relationship to, say, factory animals, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, those are some, the, you know, the pretty deep question why it's hard to do that. Mm. <laughs> Which is, yeah, at the risk of going down a tangent hole, I... <laughs> I think that's interesting that you speak of, yeah, we're not necessarily predispositioned for this harmony. And as we speak of children, my little daughter is awesome. singing in the Great. background. <laughs> she heard you and she wanted to say hi. <laughs> but the the thing that, that I find interesting there, yeah, like this idea, because I, I feel like, yeah, we are coming from a... Like our, our nature is more of that. I have more of that Buddhist philosophy of our nature is compassionate and loving. But as you said, it's very easy to screw that up. And we have to work at it daily, if not every moment, to make sure that we are nurturing that and we're creating more of it. And so when we look at our relationships with technology, this is something that I think we also need to be aware of and not just again this is technology that we're speaking of but we also look at our relationship with the greater world and everything that we come into contact with and so it's very interesting that that you bring this point up because it's like well if we've nurtured that enough inside of us i think it's going to reflect in what we create outside of us right, right. and so we're going to be more conscientious when we make these kinds of decisions. 
So that's a, a little bit of a tangent there, but I wanted to talk before we finish up just a bit about the idea of... Wait, can, can I just make a comment related yeah, to that sure, that I think is important and goes directly to the tech development question, right? You know, so you heard the story about, I think it's Tay, like the Microsoft chatbot that they made yeah. and they released out into the wild. And then they were like, oh, you know, 24 hours later, it was like yeah. this sexist, racist, Hitler loving, whatever. Mm-hmm. I would love to know who's on that development team because I can't imagine any of the brown developers I know or the women developers I know being like, oh yeah, this is a really great idea to like set this thing out into chat spaces and just let it learn from what people say to it. Because we've all experienced racist, sexist shit said to us in these forums. Right. So this is one of the things that I, you know, about being the mindful, right. It's like, and, and where the diversity thing comes into it, right. Is that I just, I I just, it's unfathomable that whoever that dev team sat around and thought that this was going to be a good idea Hmm. and that everybody that I talked to who was Brown, like me was like, of course that was an awful idea. Right. (laughs) Like, have you seen how they talk to black people? Have you seen how they talk to women? Like, of course you don't want it to learn out in the wild. Right. But this I is mean, it. This that example YouTube brings everything. Comment. Yeah, brings everything together of like, you know, the lack of 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 like cognitive diverse not cognitive, but uh epistemic diversity, you know, the lack of experience, like just life experience, um, the lack of criticality, the assumption that, you know, that everything is just gonna turn out well because everything's turned out well for me in my life i'm working at microsoft and making two hundred thousand dollars a year right like it all comes together in that example about you know everything that's wrong you know with the way that we develop this technology so anyways great point (laughs) Yeah. yeah i think at least what i was gonna say there is at least looking at some youtube comments they could have gotten an idea <laughs> of, of what it was in for. I mean, come on, <laughs> figure that out. It's not yeah, that hard. Yeah. <laughs> but hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And that is the danger here. I think that we, like you say, we let things out into the wild without them properly being vetted or properly being tested, and then we have to roll back. And this well, rollback is very dangerous because there is something live for that moment. Exactly. And this is one of this is part of the reason why I made the joke about computer science and engineering. Right. And this is why computer science is not engineering. Right. We don't let mechanical engineers build bridges with with substandard steel. Right. We don't. And they're professionalized to understand that. And there are penalties for doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. But computer science and software programming not software engineering because they're engineers and they're actually certified, right? It's the wild west. And we've allowed us, so I'll include myself in that community, right? We've allowed us to just run wild for too long, right? And as an indigenous person, I should not be using an analogy to the wild west. Um, But anyways, um, but that's the, that's, you know, that's what you're saying is exactly the thing is that, it's, it shouldn't have to be a hindsight thing, right? All this stuff was foreseeable. All of it. 
okay? Even the big data stuff where people are like, well, we, who knew what would happen when we like, you know, got this these huge amounts of data together and, you know, ran it through computers that could see patterns that we didn't ever see. Before. It's like, oh my God, social scientists have been telling you these problems for decades now, right? It's not a surprise. It makes me sick, you know, to hear everybody from friggin', you know, Zuckerberg, to, you know, everybody else to be like, oh, oh, wow, you know, sorry, we didn't know. It would turn out like this. You know, we, we made a mistake. It's like bullshit. Like you are a horrible human being because you did know you could expect that these things would happen, but you didn't care hmm. because it makes you too much money to not well, care. And that was something that we I was talking about just last week with another guest was the incentives are money, right? The incentives, incentives are huge. And the we've been incentivized by profit, not by morals. And so how do you incentivize morals is a very interesting question for me. And I think it is, is very difficult. It's super difficult, right? And as soon as you like kind of switch over and start really going down there, you recognize the complexity of it, right? Mm -hmm. And you recognize how fraught it is, you know, yeah. to do that. But it's not like we haven't done it already, right? That's exactly what these worldviews have done is they've actually constructed a set of, they've constructed a morality that's incentivized in particular ways. And one of the things right in the center of it is the profit motive, right? So like if you make money, then you're a good person. Like God is shining down on you, you know, and and clearly approving what you're doing because you're um, you're prospering. Right. So it's not that we haven't done that already. Right. That's the assumption you make when you don't have any clue about the world and about the assumptions upon which your worldview is built. You know, as you say things like, you know, oh, you know, it's not uh, it's uh, I, I should. Sorry, I'm not going to come up with a good example along here. Uh, oh, you know, when you say things like, oh. Some kids don't have enough enough to eat during the school day, so they can't. They actually can't focus and learn, right? Like you've made an assumption in your life because you've been well fed your entire life that of course you have enough food when you in your belly when you go to school, and that the reason why you may not be able to focus is because you're you know because you're you know you're acting out or you have you know there's some other there's other reasons like that, but like. Oh God, I never thought that they wouldn't have enough food in their belly. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, actually, you know, something like, I don't know what it is, but it's a crazy percentage of, of kids go to school without enough food in their belly in, in Canada, the United States. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of assumptions where people are just like, they don't, they don't see the assumptions they're making. And that's what's happening in the tech world. They don't see that the assumptions they're making. And then the problem on part of that is that when you call them out on the assumptions that they're making, they first, they refuse to believe them. Second, they believe that you're calling them, for instance, a racist. Like when, like I said, I said, I don't care if you're a racist or not. What you're doing is what I care about. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, of course, there's a whole thing about, oh, it's, you know, you're a social justice warrior and you don't really care about getting tech made. You just care about whether people's feelings are hurt or something like that. And it's like, oh my God, that's such a lazy response. Hmm. It's such a lazy response. And, um, you know, as a, as somebody who prides yourself 
and you know thinking at an advanced level you should be you should be ashamed that that's the way that you respond instead of trying to engage with what people are saying right and the critiques that they're leveling yeah yeah and it's something that we we need to be able to have conversations around this and look yeah. at it without being as you say triggered and i like yeah. this idea that you're talking about of stepping back and looking at it from a whole another plane right not from the plane of i'm making decisions and this is the decision it's a or b it is whoa is this even a decision that i should be making yes <laughs> and so yes. that is that's the real i guess the aha moment when you start to question the decisions that you're making instead of question which is the right answer right yeah. so and yeah. that's something that i i've heard it said before it's the quality of your questions yeah the quality of your questions there are going to be they're going to play a a very big role in that and so yes. now the and last thing education, and that's what education should be about it should yeah. be about improving the quality of your questions it shouldn't be about like dumping information into your brain Right. Mm. Especially in the age of the Internet and, you know, supercomputer in your pocket. Right. Like it's really about how do we train people to ask good questions? Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So the last thing that I want to touch on before we wrap this up is this idea of in indigenous cultures and how spirit gets infused in and i know you didn't want to use the word soul earlier and maybe spirit i don't want to use spirit like, either <laughs> okay, so spirit we won't but you can go that. ahead you can go okay. ahead I'll transform it the yeah you transform it as you do you can wordsmith what i say but you mentioned in this making kins with machine essay and or report i don't know what you make what you making making kin yeah. with the machines the and machines. it's a, okay. yeah it's an article yeah yeah so the the idea that in certain ceremonies and in certain um, cultural frameworks, spirit or what you want to, whatever you want to call it, comes into certain inanimate objects. And sometimes it's there for a while. Sometimes it's continuously there, and other times it just comes in and then it's out. And I thought it was fascinating when you said how when we start looking at these and again this is very far off potentially not in either of our lifetimes but if we do get to this point where there is this super computer that understands and is fully conscious what is the idea what is the essence of their spirit there and that is something that i found fascinating yes because i always looked at it as there can't be a spirit there because it is a machine. But then when you look at it through the lens of, well, you know, in indigenous cultures, everything, this wood, this rock, whatever it is, has a bit of that essence in it. So then by default, of course, it is going to have it. So uh, I just want you to riff on that for a little bit. Yeah. So, so the first thing I got to say, right, is that, and we, we've been talking about it. I don't feel that it's been a misunderstanding, but I think it always bears repeating, you know, is that, is that different indigenous cultures and communities are going to have different takes on all of yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I, 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 I struggle to this for, with this, right. So, you know, so I, I, uh, you know, I'm a Hawaiian at some moment, but I was, I was adopted by white folks when I was six months old. 
right? And I was raised in Northern California, you know, small mountain town. I was one of like two brown people around. So I didn't grow up in either one of my indigenous cultures. And so, and like I said, I was raised Christian. Uh, I was given a good, solid, like, you know, post-enlightenment liberal arts education at Stanford, as well as, as uh, studying in symbolic systems. And so I, it's, it's a journey for me to think about this, to think about that question of like, what does it mean to think of, you know, this table or the river that I, well, sorry, this table as having some kind of essence or agency, you know, I was going to say, or, you know, the river that I grew up next to, but that's actually a lot easier for me to think about because I think that's how we, how I, and I, I think in some extent the people I grew up, we kind of, the river was a living thing in our lives, right? It was very, we were in a very intimate relationship with it. Um, we didn't use that kind of language, but looking back on it now, I'm like, oh no, okay. I, I, I had a, I had a relationship with that and it, it's very dear to me. And I do feel like it's a relative of mine and I miss it. I haven't been to see it in seven years now. Right. You know, so it's partially, a, there's, there's in my mind, part of what's happening. And that's why I talk about mindfulness is it's not necessarily, this is my opinion. Okay. It's not necessarily about discovering the essence in that thing as it is about you recognizing your relationship to it. And that relationship and what it is like the river might mean that you come to a point where you can see that river as having some kind of independent essence and agency, or it might not. Okay, but even if it, you don't get there, you are still in relationship to it. Okay, there's still, it imposes, and you know, Heidegger wrote about this. It imposes demands on you, you know, at the same time that you impose demands on it. And so thinking through what that means, I think is for me right now in this conversation is the most important thing. In my own personal life, in my trying to understand my cultures, it is about like trying to see the world in a more animated manner than how I was raised. Okay. And I was raised by great people, right? Really friggin' solid, good people. Um, have that have a good way of engaging with the world. So it's not like I was corrupted or you know, I was shown a bad way to be in the world, right? It's just that it's very different than the ways that I'm trying to learn about now. And it's work. There's a lot of resistance that comes from my, you know, my Christian upbringing, from kind of the rational scientific uh, education that I was given, the liberal and then the, sort of the classical liberal sense worldview about individual rights and responsibilities versus collective rights and responsibilities that I was raised in. Like those things are in me deep. Right. And so getting my mind to think differently about, for instance, my relationship to 
the things in my world and even the other humans in my world, that's work, right? Um, it's really satisfying work, but it is work, you know, just like what we were talking about in terms of like raising young humans to be humans, right? Like it's work to do that. Um, so I think that, you know, what I'm interested in to go back to what we talked about a little bit earlier with thinking, you know, in writing the essay and cause we spent a lot of time, you know, we're all used to, all four of us are used to having people, you know, misappropriate indigenous knowledges, misunderstand it, use it against us to, you know, to be like, oh, you're just a mystical, a rational, whatever. Like, you know, most of the indigenous people I know who write things for the public, you know, they're, you know, they've had experiences where, you know, doing that has, you know, caused them to be dismissed in some ways. You know, so we talked a lot about, we were like, you know, do these people need to, do they deserve to know this? <laughs> right? Should we be sharing this kind of knowledge? And there's some things that we didn't write about. And in the, you know, the Indigenous Protocol and AI working group workshops that we did after we published the paper and in the, the, the uh, position paper, the 200-page position paper on Indigenous Protocol and AI that we published this summer, Right. There was tons of discussions about things that like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to talk about that. Like, we don't need to share that or they don't deserve to hear it or my community doesn't allow me to share that. Right. So, um, you know, it's not about like, oh, OK, let's grab onto those indigenous knowledges and figure out how we're going to make AI. Really, what it is for me is like, OK, what I want to do is I want to work within my knowledge traditions to think about how to create AI. And if you're somebody who makes AI that impacts indigenous communities, you should be doing the work to understand how they see the world and want to engage the world so that that technology serves them in the way that they want to be served, not in the way that you assume that they want to be served, right? Because you're making, you know, you're making software for that mythical every man, right? Um, so you're going to make assumptions about what that every man wants that they're like, we don't want that. Right. We want this thing over here that you've never even thought of. Right. So you should be in that kind of dialogue with those people. And it's not just indigenous communities, right? It's everybody should be treated this way. You know, the problem, you know, so, you know, the great power, you know, one of the great powers in, in programming computer science is abstraction, Right. You figure out, you know, you figure out how to do this one thing and then you realize that it can be abstracted to be generalized across a whole class of things, right? You figure out how to do page rank with a small number of, of, of websites and you can scale it to tens of millions of websites, right? That's power. That's intoxicating. That's part of the reason why so many young male programmers in particular are such pricks, right? Is because they get a taste of that power and they think that they are the magicians, right? And, uh, uh, and then they learn. A lot of them learn. Some of them don't, right? And they, you know, become, you know, Peter Thiel, no, not Peter Thiel, Elon Musk or both of them, right? You know, so, um, you, you have to, 
you have to temper that power. You have to temper that abstractive methodology and always remember that it's an abstraction and that it's a generalization and that you're going to do, and I will use the term, I know it's going to trigger the technical folks, but you're going to do violence to actual people because you've abstracted out the particularities of their existence. Mm, right. And we talked point. about a number of examples that have already happened and we could keep going. You know, there's just that guy, what a month ago, I forgot somewhere in the Midwest who was like arrested on the street because he got flagged. He got flagged by some facial recognition algorithm and they wouldn't believe him when he was saying who he was. He was a black guy. Right. Like that's real harm. That's not abstract. That's just that's not just a rounding error. That's not an acceptable um, that's not an acceptable collateral damage. Right? And if you think it is, then you're sick in the head. There's something wrong with you. You're a bad human. Somebody didn't raise you right. Okay? So, you know, we have to remember, you know, people who work in fields that gain power from these kind of abstractions. They have, you know, statistics, you know, you know, medical studies, you know, I, there's a great, uh, there's a great uh, neuroscientist works in genomic, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a genomics researcher, uh, Hawaiian uh, Kialu Fox, right, where he talks about the fact that, you know, oh, you know, the genome project, we mapped humanity's genome, right? And he's like, yeah, but, you know, actually, it turns out that 95% of the data that was used for that came from people of European descent. So we didn't map the human GMO. We didn't, sorry, wrong place of the quotes. We didn't map the human genome, right? We mapped the genome of Europe, you know, European descent people, right? And he also says, uh, I think, uh, and, and if I'm getting the percentages wrong, it's my fault, not his fault. Go look at his TED talk. Um, you know, something like 95% also of like clinical trials around work, you know, uh, you know, medicine that's based off of genomic research is done with people of European descent. Hmm. Right. Like, but, but the, but then when you read the papers and you listen, like the actual scientific papers are usually pretty good about being specific, but as soon as it gets taken away by the press and even when the scientists talk about it, like informally or popularly, it gets collapsed to human. Yeah. Right. And he's yeah, great to listen to. Because, yeah. Cause he, it's really good to listen to him because he knows his stuff. And he's like, this is the damage it does to our understanding of how some people's genomes work because they weren't part of that study. And it turns out that, you know, there are population peculiarities about how different parts of the genome get expressed. Okay. So when you're drunk on that abstraction, you know, this is the thing that, you know, that I think I wish engineers were taught better and scientists were taught better. Right. Is that you're, you, you as soon as you start abstracting and generalizing, you're leaving people behind. And in many places, like I said, you know, those are real lived bodies that are being impacted by the work that you're doing. 
And so you should be doing the work to figure out how you can get the power of the abstraction, but still make it possible to address these, the specificity of particular people or particular populations. Mm -hmm. Like that should be your job as a good scientist. That should be your job as a good engineer. You know, and I don't understand I do historically understand how it's developed, but I, but on a human level, I don't understand how we have been okay with these abstractions riding roughshod over numerically minor populations. So I want to just touch on one more thing and talk a little bit about how you said the idea is when you come out with these different indigenous views, how it gets in a way it can sometimes get attacked. And I feel that is something that also needs to be addressed because it is like the inclusion factor needs to be all of these different ways of seeing the world this this inclusion needs to be happening in that and so i i don't think that's something that uh can go unsaid is how yeah we need to be accepting and it could be totally nuts it could be way out there from the way that we're looking at it but again the point that you've made so many times over the last hour is that we are looking at things from our limited perspective and the dialogue needs to be there when we're able to see other perspectives and just have that conversation. So I want to thank you so much. I cannot believe how how much you've you've opened my mind here just in this short hour. I also want to mention that, uh, you know, some of this stuff, it, it may seem out there right now, but then who knows, in 10, 15 years, 20 years, it's like we may, we may be in this point that you speak of. And these are things that at the very least we need to bring up and we need yes. to show like, that there is something here and there is some kind of uh, that we are talking about something that is important to bring to the surface so that it can be acknowledged. And then I, I really think that you're doing a great job of this. I want to thank you for being here. If there is any way that people can reach out to you and continue the conversation, what would be the best way for that? So my website is uh, www.jasonlewis.org. Um, uh, and my email is jason.lewis, so J-A-S-O-N dot L-E-W-I-S at concordia.ca. And I encourage the people listening to you, from what I understand of your audience, to go to um, indigenous-ai.net. And take a look at the the work that we've done there, in particular the position paper on indigenous protocol and artificial intelligence that was published this last summer, that that um, captures a really wide range of indigenous perspectives on this question of AI, 
uh, ranging from artistic responses to engineering responses. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jason. I want to leave it at that. And we will see everyone later. If you are not in our Slack channel already, please join it where we're having conversations and we're bringing up topics such as this and many, many more around the ethics of AI and data ethics. You can find all the links to that in the show notes below. Take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.